Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Just want to let you know this will be the last bookish until next year. So I want to give a quick thank you for listening throughout 2021. And I'll see you in 2022. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's happiest podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George DeBrellis. This is a show we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Turn the show, we have a gentleman. He grew up, uh, was born in New South Wales and then grew up in WA before heading over to North America where he studied, uh, he got his PhD at Cornell in Ithaca, New York and then taught all around the States and Canada. His last stint being at the University of Alberta. He's now a professor of philosophy at UWA. Rob Wilson, welcome to the show. Hey George, good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You're my first professor of philosophy, so I'm very excited to hear what I can learn from that. I'm, uh, I... Who knows? Maybe I'll be the last as well. <laughs> we'll see. Well, that's it. It's, it's all riding on you. That's uh, that's true, yeah. I guess before we go straight... Actually, you know, let's go into the book and then we can jump around from there because I've got a feeling we'll be able to tie lots of things together with uh, the book. So uh, your book of choice for today is... It's a book called White Queen Psychology and Other Essays for Alice, which is by uh, probably my favorite living philosopher in the world, Ruth Garrett Millican. Right. And it's, uh, from my understanding, it's a collection of essays just kind of explaining her thoughts on, well, her perspective on a whole bunch of different philosophical topics. Um, it seems to tie into a larger work, which I don't... <laughs> what was the title for it again? I've got it here. Language, Thought and Other Biological Categories. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this apparently this is an intro into that kind of even more heavy topic. What? Why do like you, you sent me uh, when we were talking uh, a few different books to choose from and this one seemed like, I guess it caught my eye a bit because uh, it's look at biology and language and kind of that was kind of what, the first thing that caught my eye with it. But why is it one of your favorite books, I guess? Yeah, one reason I like a lot is it's partly because I, I admire Ruth Millikan uh, so much as a philosopher. Um, she came into philosophy uh, in a regular sort of way in her 20s, but then mostly uh, had an interrupted career and, and, and really only got her first permanent job in philosophy after this language thought and other biological categories book was, was published. And it's the book that really changed the philosophy of mind, philosophy of language. It took a while for people to catch on to it because it was so innovative and new. That was in 1984. And as I got to know more about her story, and I was stunned that she didn't have a permanent job in philosophy, even though um, by the time she'd done that, that book had been out by for, for 10 years or so. And White Queen Psychology is a collection of essays which essentially are explaining the complicated ideas in the big book in bite-sized 
pieces and then putting those essays back together in a collection. So, and just her own modesty and humility in, in that whole uh, exercise interested me because she more or less says, yeah, I didn't think this was a very difficult book. You know, it kind of just seemed natural to me, but obviously other people have found it challenging and hard. So I've had another go and almost, you know, the majority of the republished essays in White Queen Psychology were published in the very top philosophy journals. So she's able to hit home runs in journals that often only accept 5% of the papers they receive uh, time and time again. And she was essentially doing this without a permanent position in philosophy um, teaching at the University of Connecticut. And I just enjoyed getting to know her as my own career started to take off and I had interactions with her. And so I was always really grateful when she'd produced something else new. The other essays in here, the, the book also has three new essays and they're almost as complicated as the book in their own way. So, you know, one of them's 80 pages. Um, but again, for Ruth, it might not have seemed like such a big deal to be knocking that out. So I, I don't know, there's a kind of um, fondness of the author and just the ability to try and re-engage on something that's been so field-changing. Right. So I guess uh, I, I, there's a few things there I want to talk about. I guess the first one is when you say a career in philosophy, and this might be me showing my own naivety, but like, what does that mean exactly when you're saying she didn't have one? What was she doing? And yeah, I guess what is a career in philosophy as well? Yeah, so she's teaching philosophy at a university level. That would be having a career. And typically people who make a career of it instead of just sort of being in for a few years will have an ongoing position. So at some point they'll be granted tenure in the academic system, which means that it's much more difficult to remove somebody from that position. And it's there partly to ensure that uh, people can speak their own minds, they can teach the content that they think that even if it's challenging and some people don't like it. So that's partly about academic freedom uh, and she didn't have that kind of security uh, in for most of the time. She was doing more what's called casual teaching and being employed almost year to year on short-term contracts. And I just found that surprising, somebody of her stature. That wouldn't be typical. So you've usually got teaching, research, and then service to the profession and community as part of your profile if you're in the university system. So mostly a career in philosophy means a job in a university system with some kind of teaching component. Some people only do research, but not very many. And um, then probably increasingly what's been happening is that there have been fewer and fewer of those positions. So those careers have become more limited. And this is certainly true in the Australian university system now as, uh, you know, the humanities more generally, apart from just philosophy, because philosophy is a part of it, are coming under great sort of threat and pressure. Um, now, mm. actually, let's 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 talk to that for a second before we go, because even though there was other stuff in the book, but like I actually would love to hear uh, some more of your thoughts. Obviously, extremely biased thoughts, but I think I'll actually agree with them completely. Uh, in terms of the humanities loss, in the, especially here in Australia, like from my understanding now, it's going to be just as expensive to do them as it is to do like a law course or something like that. Um, this kind of ties into your own views on your research with philosophy, like. In your view, how big a loss is this and why is it a loss? And could you speak to that sort of thing at all? Oh, it's, it's, it's going to become an even bigger loss than it is uh, already. We, uh, the humanities, and so what I mean by that are disciplines like history, um, classics where you learn ancient languages about ancient, ancient cultures, the study of language and culture itself, uh, maybe even including uh, linguistics, uh, philosophy, and then there's a bunch of other related fields, studies in literature. That's the humanities as, as a, a cluster sometimes is put together with social sciences as well. So you might include um, economics, anthropology, sociology. 
my own university just in the last few days at University of Western Australia, they've finalised plans to get rid of anthropology altogether as a degree, as a major. It, it's stunning. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of caveat in that. It's not completely gone, but they're, get, they're getting rid of people with permanent positions you know, by abolishing the major and then reintroducing a new one with almost the same name and rehiring people back into it on less secure forms of employment. And what that means in terms of the loss is you've got people who have built up careers sometimes for 30 years. For example, in anthropology, they will be building connections with Indigenous communities. They'll be training people in these methods to understand the cultures that um, are in, uh, say, the northwest of Western Australia who have significant cultural artefacts that are sometimes, as people will know if they're listening and have been following the news, are destroyed by mining companies perhaps in some sense inadvertently or unknowingly, but certainly under the guise of legal, uh, for, legalised forms of destruction, uh, however regretfully. But to make those decisions in informed ways, you need people with that kind of expertise. You need people with special kinds of training. And, and in cutting out away at the humanities and not training people in these fields for, say, archaeological research or anthropological research, or I think even philosophical research in some way, because that's centred around critical thinking, we're just losing uh, this depth that we need to inf- to basically build a better world in the future. And I think we'll be paying for that down, down the track. We need people who can have substantive knowledge of particular sorts of areas and also be trained enough to challenge some ideas. And I think that's what happens a lot in philosophy is, is to this encouragement of, of critical and creative thinking. Think outside of the box. Think about, well, what might be a different way to think about the climate change situation? What might be a better way to solve problems about sustainability to do with our use of you know, disposable coffee cups or something like that? Because these are policies that are coming in and they're, they're real you know, problems in our, in our uh, the kinds of worlds we'll be in indefinitely. But I think that the humanities have a special role to play. Mm. Uh, humanities and social sciences together have a special role to play in that. And so it's very short-sighted to be going for so-called employability skills which end up overlooking some of the things that most equip people to be flexible in an uncertain workplace in a world that's got increasing challenges. Yeah, I, I uh, 100% agree. I think that's one of the weirdest parts. It's like you're training people with very sp- – like instead of going for something broad and general which teaches you how to think, you actually go very focused. And that actually doesn't make sense as the world gets even more and more varied and random in terms of what, what people are going to be dealing with in two to three years. So I 100% agree with that. Um, was that – so I guess, was it the critical thinking part that drew you into philosophy in the first place? I guess by default, because that's in, in some ways the one, you know, one of the foundational things that gets taught in the first year of university philosophy. And often you can do philosophy as a high school subject as well uh, in ATAR and sometimes in other forms. And that's often what people emphasize. Sometimes they do sort of you know, a form of history of philosophy. You study some great thinkers and books and so on that's not i'm not so keen on that i, I think that's a bit more specialized and of a more limited use it is, is of use for a more developed education philosophy but i think it's a way to you know, think about ethics like in our intro intro class to philosophy at uwa uh, it's called ethics in the digital age and it's actually required for people doing the cybersecurity degree and degrees in artificial intelligence because they want people to be able to think critically about the ongoing problems that will come up with robotic cars or with the use of drones in um, you know, uh, civilian environments and so on. And it's, so it's getting people familiar with the, those 
patterns of you know tools of the trade, if you like, for to be able to think about a problem space, to be able to think about alternative solutions to it, to formulate an argument for review, to see an alternative perspective, and heaven forbid, to even be able to change your mind without regret and go, yeah, actually, I used to think that, but now I've got better reasons. I've listened to another perspective, and I can do that. And I, you know, I'm old-fashioned enough to think we could do with a little bit more of that um, in our um, contemporary society. And that's one of the things that you, so when we talk about critical thinking skills, even something as simple as listening <laughs> is a critical thinking skill that I think we're losing. It's just, it's not about just digesting some information and spitting it back out. It's about what does that, where does that perspective really come from? What, how good are those reasons that somebody's given now? How would you check? in the age of you know, fake news, whether something's right or not, what would count as a good reason at the end of the mm. day. And uh, that's a lot of what we do in philosophy. We don't only do it in philosophy. It's not that you do it, but I think we tend to, you know, that tends to be one of our main sorts of domains uh, and then applied to various sorts of areas. So you can apply the ethics stuff to medicine and thinking about, you know, um, organ donation or thinking about questions of beginning and end of life. Certainly doctors have a certain kind of expertise in that, but sometimes they struggle with, how to think through the ethical issues. And it's important that they be, in my view, be trained to grapple with some of those things. Yeah. I mean, I read this book uh, by Atul Gawande called uh, Being Mortal that really highlighted for me, it's just so much more than a medical question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think philosophy works best in concert with other fields and disciplines, not alone. And that's one of the things that philosophers are quite good at, I think, is, is being able to learn enough about another field and then thinking how might they contribute, how might they benefit from the stuff in their and uh, to collaborate across these different sorts of spaces. And I think that's maybe a very different view about what's important about philosophy than, than floats around in, in some amorphous, you know, the public mind. Uh, the idea of philosophers are locked away in a room and they're just uh, thinking deep thoughts themselves. <laughs> Not really. Uh, we're typically in classrooms. We're working constructively with students at all sorts of levels. I do a lot of work in philosophy in schools, for example. I think it's fundamental. It's fundamentally important to our education system that we have students who are whose curiosity is sparked and they're and who are equipped with the kinds of skills, thinking skills that they can use in mathematics, they can use in science, they can use it when they read a work of literature. And uh, I think you get that through the kind of um, I know a, a dialogical approach uh, where you spark that interest, and then you know the onus is on people to come up with their own reasons and then to be able to talk to their peers. And you can work with children from a very early age and you'll see these massive gains they get. And that's been done for nearly 50 years and I've been involved in that for most of my career. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, such a useful skill. Yeah, and sometimes I think it's a matter of uh, just feeling comfortable knowing you don't have to come up with the answer like right now. Like it's a hard problem to solve. Um, it's a difficult thing. What are the relevant factors? I need to back off a little bit and let that sit. And I think that kind of patience is is one thing that we learn in, in philosophy, partly because we've seen lots of great ideas come and go and, and be bandied around. And uh, philosophy is still about ideas. It's, it's, it's not just a sort of toolkit, but it's in how you grapple with those ideas and put them together and then respond to challenges to them as well. I think we need that in the public policy domain. Uh, we need it in thinking about our social communities. We need it in thinking about uh, vulnerable individuals in our communities and how we better include them because we don't have a very good track record on a number of those fronts as, as a society from you know child removal practices in indigenous communities for example 
Um, I've done a lot of work with uh, around uh, disability, uh, working on the history of um, sterilization in, in Canada of people who are thought to be incapable of intelligent parenthood. And I just kind of followed my nose into that as well. It's not something, there weren't many other people in philosophy doing that. But again, I sort of thought, well, why is it like that? You know, what is that? And I had to learn more history. I had to interact with a lot of other people in other sorts of fields and really try and bring students along for that ride uh, by partly learning about the lived experience of people uh, that they wouldn't otherwise encounter. People who'd been institutionalized, sterilized in some cases, and uh, having them in front of classrooms and then being able to engage with them um, and have the students interact is super meaningful. And I think that's part of my take on what it means to be a philosopher, I think, is to, is to be in that kind of uh, public space and, and to be a kind of facilitator between people with different sorts of perspectives, almost like sort of like a, a bad journalistic uh, interviewer, you know, not, not somebody as, as, as good as yourself at probing deeply into the underlying bits and pieces there, but sort of, you know, I see it as part of what I like to try and do. <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, I guess <laughs> I'm very bad at taking compliments. I don't know if that was a compliment. Anyways, okay. So <laughs> um, it's interesting you say that because like from, from your description just then, and this I'm sure is a very rich co- topic and I'm not sure if it ties into the book as well, but your description there, it's almost hard to separate out a lot of the time, I think, psychology from philosophy and a lot of what you're saying, like in terms of understanding something like eugenics, uh, which you'd mentioned, the sterilization programs, but even the stuff that happened much closer to home, like with the forced abductions and things. Um, I, yeah, I guess this is, this, this is where it gets complicated because like you're analyzing it, like where does understanding the psychology of what was involved in that end and then a philosophy of it begin, if you know my question, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a there's a bigger question there about this. You know, what's the relationship between philosophy and psychology? Mm. What counts as psychology? Because again, I think people have an idea. It's you know, you, you go in to have a chat with someone, you lay on the couch and you know, spill spill the beans, and then they say, well, you know, you don't need to you know think about your mother in that way anymore, and so on. Most of psychology isn't like that at all. It's mostly you know working with rats and um, doing bad things to them in order to figure figure out various you know pathways that they have in their, <laughs> in their neural systems and so on. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a narrower thing here that we, we might be able to home in on. I mean, I think part of this task of trying to have a deeper understanding, it has a psychological edge to it. But if you want to understand aspects of social history or why things are like, as they are, sometimes it doesn't have to do with how we think about things. Sometimes it's got to do with things that we've built. Sometimes it's got to do with just if you like the laws of nature, how things function in the wild independent of, of, of us. So, for example, if you want to understand things about environmental change, certainly you've got to understand some aspects of human psychology, particularly if you want to think about, well, how do we do things better, uh, more effectively, more sustainably? Uh, but it's not pure, it can't be reduced to just a question of, of psychology. And that's where I think philosophy allows you to say, okay, what's the psychological dimension to this? But what's the economic dimension as well? So you have you have areas like philosophy of psychology, but you also have areas like philosophy of economics. You have philosophy of almost anything in some sense, mm. um, and it's asking those more foundational sorts of questions and often trying to stitch things together. So if somebody's in economics, they'll be doing they, they'll know much more economics than somebody doing philosophy of economics typically, but they might know nothing about anthropology or they might know nothing about psychology or very little. 
but philosophers of psychology can dabble enough in each of those to go, oh, hang on, there's this other stuff over here in, you know, there's this stuff in behavioral economics, but there's also behaviorism in psychology. And I know a bit about both of them, so maybe insights from one can be brought to the other. So sometimes the work of a philosopher is to be kind of integrative, I think. And again, not to, to try and dictate to people on what they should think. And I've never seen that as my sort of role, even in realms where I have strong, say, moral views mm-hmm. about things. I think it's better to, to sort of help people feel their way into a space to think things through themselves. Yeah, okay, that's actually a good point because I was I was going to raise that as another thing. Uh, I guess you would you would sense yourself probably some pushback because of the idea of being like this is how you think, and people could be like, well, who are you to be telling me how to think? What makes you able to say that? Um, like the inherent risk of smugness that people might feel from something like that. Um, and that's your, like, I guess from what you're describing there, a strategy to deal with that is to not ever be pointing the finger and being like, this is what you do, but rather provide a space for them to kind of get it themselves. Are you saying that's a useful tool just for learning wise, or are you saying that's better for them? It is useful, but it's not to say that you can't, I mean, sometimes people are wrong. They make mistakes. <laughs> and sometimes you can just say, actually, you're saying this in this case, but here's a parallel case that if your reasons held in this case, they should also apply in this case, but you wouldn't accept that conclusion, would you? And then of course it's up to them to, respond and think about it right you can't you know there's sometimes this model of philosophy where you're holding like a philosophical gun to someone's head but but really that doesn't i don't think that really uh happens that much or it's, it's ineffective as a strategy you've got to pull people along for the ride and get them to see oh yeah actually you've got this technical thing that you technically call a fallacy it's got a fancy name for it you know and i want to avoid that but then they can apply that and go oh yeah oh whoops i slipped up and everybody slips up Everybody can make a sort of mistake. You know, somebody might just equivocate, you know, use a term in two different ways in their way of thinking and they don't realize they're different. And so they've actually made a fallacy. They've equivocated between two senses of it. You can't run an argument through with that shift in meaning. Very simple thing you learn in first year philosophy at university or even in high school, but we'll still fall into those traps. And maybe this is where it comes back to a link with psychology. We we have all sorts of biases and ways in which our you know, views get skewed because of, you know, in some sense, human nature partly and partly how we've built our own, our societies. And as a to recognise those and make adjustments along the way, I think that's it, that's important. Uh, and that's maybe shared by at least some aspects of psychology and philosophy. To, to, to use that as a jumping point, just to get back, because I, I think that might tie in. Um, I do want to touch on the book just a bit more, even though I'm so interested in all the topics around it. Uh, it looks like this book does it kind of look at that idea of the human nature element of um, thought and the idea of, uh, like, from what I understand, something about like natural selections impact on ways of thinking. Yeah, I think what um, Millikan's doing throughout her work is, you know, her focus is on the mind and understanding how the mind works. And she's trying to provide a framework that challenges the default sort of view, which is at at the time she's writing in the 80s and 90s, it's very common. And I worked in this area in philosophy of cognitive science, philosophy of mind, philosophy of cognitive science. It was, you know, it was what you might think of as a computational metaphor was dominant. You know, the mind is a kind of computer. And so we can build these models of computers we can, and develop robots that will help us to understand human cognition. Um, and, uh, and you might be able to do that in animals as, as well, and you have these computational models for uh, how, th- how the mind actually really works. And it's not that she thinks that's irrelevant, but she thinks on a more fundamental level we need to think about cognition as a form of biology. We need to think about it in a framework in which we evolved for certain sorts of purposes and our mind you know in the same way that we think about the liver has an evolutionary history and it's there to to serve a certain sort of uh, 
uh, function in terms of you know cleansing things in the blood and providing nutrients and so on, kidneys and hearts and all the rest. She thinks the brain is just another kind of fancy organ. It's, it's what's sometimes called a mental organ. So we, we, we need to drop, you know, it's not that the computer metaphor drops out altogether, but we now kind of need to relocate how we're thinking about some of the fundamental questions about the nature of human thought and how we represent things in the world. Um, that's, I think, her signal contribution in that. And, and in that sense, it's got something to do with human nature. Uh, I'm not sure if Ruth would cast it that way exactly her, herself because she might think that sounds too grand, this appeal to human nature. But you're right, it's got this, bio, you know, sometimes her approach is, is it's a, a kind of fancy word, I guess, but it's called teleosemantics. Um, teleo just meaning it's got a, a kind of purpose or an end and semantics to do with the meaning of our mental representations. And her idea is that, we need to think about how things evolve, what purposes that they are there for. So beliefs are there, for example, in order to represent how the world really is. So when you're believing well or properly, um, you're actually getting things right. You know, um, When you're desiring properly, you want a certain state of affairs to come about in the world. It's got to do, you know, the world will eventually fit in with the state that you're in. You'll act in ways to bring those things about. And so she's thinking about that just like a heart. What a heart's meant to do is pump blood around the body. You know, a heart does lots of other things, like it makes nice thumping noises and they're meant to be pretty regular if things are going well for you. And a doctor can pick that up. But the function of the heart is not to make noises, even if we appropriate those noises for medical diagnosis, right? Um, so you've mm. got, and you've got to look at the history of the organ to figure out what its function is. This is this is such a rich and loaded topic. I'm like so fascinated already because that's what I was hoping was something like this. Because like, I guess, um, yeah, I get pairing it back to something which you can apply specifically to the brain. I guess that doesn't get meddled, muddled, but it does seem like a potentially. Um, uh, I'm sure you've got you know the words I'm looking for here, but essentially you're looking at it now. And saying the purpose for it, but not looking at it what it was like obviously 5,000 years ago versus 1,000 years ago and whether that's changed or not in terms of the brain and its computational abilities. Like like my first thought is like how math has no basis in nature at all, but obviously all humans can grasp mathematics pretty well. So like I guess in terms Mm -hmm. of – but you're saying she's looking at it – okay. The purpose of every organism is to pass on its genes essentially from a – you know, what those things uh-huh. are there for. But obviously, then you've got to break it down from there. What's each thing providing to it? So I guess when it comes to the brain, you're saying it's the belief and then acting on those beliefs. Is that what you're... Yeah, I mean, the, just one step back. It's the idea of bringing our thinking about the mind and, and what it does and what thinking is into this broader evolutionary fold without just reducing it to saying, oh, it's just this evolutionary function. But to start to think, actually, why are we, you know, to, to push back the other way, you know, Sometimes you know, there's an old tradition of thinking, you know, the mind's one thing and the body's another thing. The body's material, it's governed by certain kind, kinds of physical laws and so on. But the mind is like the soul and it could survive the death of the body. You know, very rich religious traditions have that view. The ordinary common sense, what we sometimes call the folk view, is, is often uh, in that realm. It's called dualism, right? So the mind gets treated very differently. So one way to think about Millikan's work is to say that even though, you know, for the most part, most contemporary philosophers of mind and cognitive scientists are materialists. They think that all there is is physical stuff. So when we think about the mind, we don't think about it as an ethereal, um, immaterial substance, which was the traditional sort of view that's, that holds sway and is still very common and popular. Nonetheless, 
there's a sense in which the mind is getting treated very differently. It's still getting treated in this dualistic way. It's not integrated into a truly deeper evolutionary uh, sort of view. And that's what she's trying to do, I think, is to say when we think about, you know, uh, how the mind sort of functions, we need to take the histories of the, you know, the brain and the, and, and the particular mental functions that evolve um, seriously. Not that they couldn't change, but she's got a story about that as well. Because sometimes things, does, you know, um, evolve for one purpose and then they get adapted for something else, right? Or maybe they lose their function altogether, you know? As if their initial purpose might be changed to something else and it just doesn't even do the initial thing anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's lo- again, there's lots of other examples uh, like that with other parts, if you like, parts of the body. But I, don't, I mean, this might make it sound very um, it, it specific and, and maybe that's a good thing, but part of Millikan's view in language, thought, and other biological categories, this sort of big book, the earlier one, is that she does this, she works all the big notions in, in metaphysics that we use, like notions of identity and uh, truth and things like that in this broader sort of framework. And I think that's partly why people had a really hard time getting their head around it because, again, we, even in philosophy, we get, I've been mean, in praise of all this integration and moving across different areas, but we often become quite specialised. So philosophers of mind for a long time didn't really talk to philosophers of biology or they wouldn't do dabble in other areas of, you know, uh, into ethics or um, stuff that's in, more squarely in, in metaphysics, the study of what there is, um, which might seem strange, but Millikan really had it from the beginning. She just systematically built up these big views that all fit together. And so that's one of the things we often value in, in philosophy is someone who's got not just a view about this particular narrow thing, but it leads to a view somewhere else. So your view about the mind might lead to a view about language, and that might lead to a view about the nature of norms and how they govern us, and that might lead us to, well, what kinds of political societies do we have and, and so on. And, and Ruth Millikan has really developed that. And so I think White Queen Psychology, one thing I like about it is you've got that in more bite-sized bits, much more accessible uh, maybe you're not going to find it on the newspaper stands of um, your, your checkout at the supermarket uh, or anything like that. But um, as far as it, relative to other stuff that she's done, it is, it's, I'd say, highly accessible. And that's yeah, good. That makes, at least that's yeah, a good starting point to get wet your whistle before you go into some of the deeper stuff. Um, the- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I just find that. So So do you, because again, because I haven't read it, I can't 
her purchase probably in a more nuanced way. But I guess fundamentally, do you agree? Like, is there a disagreement about what she was saying or is it generally agreed now or is there different camps on this thing? Or like, how does that, like, how did it land? Yeah, no, there are still different camps. I and mean, that's one of the things we have to learn to live with in philosophy. It's, it's hard to win everybody over. Uh, but, you know, Millikan went from having, in some sense, a constituency of, of one person, her, and, you know, I think in the early days maybe she didn't even fully believe it all, um, to just gradually winning people over. People would teach these books in graduate seminars and it filtered down through lines, but mainly through doing these individual essays that it caught on. And I still remember as a graduate student, we were, I was reading it, I was at uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for a summer. Uh, doing a, a program in brain and cognitive sciences. And I remember hanging out with the philosophy students there and they were sort of, oh, this book has, you know, only recently come out and what do you think about it? It's been out for four or five years, but people were still trying to digest it at that time. And, you know, that to me, I, I appreciate the novelty of it and, and the way in which it has kind of, hasn't. it's not that it's built a consensus, but there's now a whole bunch of people who have subsequently developed, you know, it's a framework now that wasn't there uh, 30 years ago. And to me, that's kind of admirable. To it's hard to do that. It's unusual, yeah. you know. So sort of, you know, somebody like Peter Singer in ethics, who's very well known, the great Australian ethicist, you know, is well known for, you know, having again not created in his case the animal rights movement, but his philosophical contributions in the 1970s were really significant in getting people to challenge views that were widely accepted and developing a new framework for thinking about animal rights and vegetarianism and things like that. Uh, and again, it's not that he's made everybody agree with him, but if you look at when he started, you know, what was the balance and different views are out, there's a whole space of stuff out there that wasn't there before. And again, he hasn't done it single-handedly alone, but it's partly bringing people along, uh, not quite a graduate seminar at a time, but, you know, a public lecture, a conversation, a series of student essays, um, you know, and, and so on. And in 10 or 20 years, you see new things that weren't there before in terms of how people are thinking. And I think that's healthy. Whether or not you agree with his specific sorts of views, I think is not that um, important on that or other sorts of issues, but just admiring what he's done in that sort of space. Yeah, I mean, like, and what you're saying, there's a, it sparks a few thoughts to me about, yeah, it's this interesting thing where people don't realize how much the intellectual framework that provides a basis for the things that are going on is required. And sometimes it might come, as the action's already happening, but these justifications are almost sought and chased, even from a political point of view or for whatever, but it actually does have an influence on how people think after that. Like, I just think of certain, uh, yeah, political figures who maybe have used writings to justify actions, and it actually has then filtered down into the culture. But probably Peter Singh is a great example because I hadn't even heard of him until relatively recently, um, like in, in all of what he'd done. But it's weird now to think of people not thinking like that already. Like, but that's how widespread he'd become. I'd never even heard of Peter Singer, but then the concept of like treating animals as things who feel pain and looking at that in a holistic way, like that just seems so weird to me that that was a surprise, I guess. So that's, that, that, that's, that's what I mean by it trickled down so much that I didn't know, even know Peter Singer, but I'd heard of like, it seems like I'd taken on some of his philosophical tenets almost. Yeah, or to, or to th take another sort of example, you need know, to think about, and Singh has made contributions to this as well, but others have, uh, Amartya Sen, uh, the economist, has done more, but it's very philosophical sort of work, uh, thinking about uh, world poverty and thinking about people as being, you know, each person being created sort of equally, but we live in very unequal 
worlds with very unequal distributions of resources through, you know, largely through no fault of the individuals involved themselves. What sense do we make of that? How do, you know, partly it's a, you know, a question of how did it come about and partly a question how do we change it if we think it needs to be changed. But it's just getting people, you know, that was not always a, uh, an available thought option even. And so it's taken people with views to go out there and say, hey, here's something we haven't noticed and I'm going to give you reasons for taking it seriously now. And that's what I think we often do in philosophy. Again, not uniquely or only, but I think we do it particularly well. That's what we're kind of trained to do. Um, like take providing that for actually, and from, from that, just to go to something we touched on earlier, and I know it's one of your focus points, and this might be an interesting point to kind of discuss it. Uh, this notion of, yeah, everyone's equal, I guess, because as you'd said, you'd done some work on eugenics and the mass sterilization programs that happened in the early 20th century. And, and that was all based on the idea of, I guess, people not being equal almost. Um, so I guess my question to that, and I'm not trying to be some sort of a shock jock or anything, but is the argument there that we can't measure people and that's why we shouldn't do it? Or is there an actual other reason on top of that? Because like, I would feel like the most nuts and bolts reason is that you just don't like, you can't track any of this stuff. It's not genetic and passed on, but if you could, then maybe you could like, you know what I'm saying there? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's always that temptation to sort of think, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were these errors in the past and it's just we didn't have the right tools for measuring and evaluating and some people got carried away. And, and you know, there's definitely something to that. So that in principle, a kind of pro- project, because eugenics was essentially a project of human improvement across generations. And you could, you know, uh, people who are called transhumanists have this view now about we could use technologies, for example, to transcend our bodies. So in the extreme case, we might just uplift, upload our minds into computers, save them from all the ravages that are going on now, wait till the world's a better place, and then download them maybe hundreds of years later into better bodies. Or maybe we don't even need bodies at all. You know, we just survive as electronic sorts of records somewhere and you can recreate all the experiences from that. Now, here we're truly in the land of fantasy, um, but often we creep up on it um, through scientific developments and so on. And it's interesting to see what people's reactions are to just the mere possibilities even uh, and the temptations that are there. So I think they'll be there and there's nothing, certainly nothing wrong with the general idea of seeking human improvement. But I always say, let's actually look at how we've done these things in the past. Let's just use that as a bit of a guide to at least put some, you know, maybe raise some flags about what might go wrong. One thing that people sometimes say about the history of eugenics that led down um, the path of, to, to Nazism and, the, and um, the Holocaust and the Second World War, or those aspects of the Second World War, um, is they sort of say, well, it's just that we didn't have the right scientific categories and science wasn't involved. It was just became a populist kind of program that got, you know, taken in the wrong direction. But that's actually just not true of the history. Science was integral. The best science of the day was integral to the way in which people thought about this. So they thought about poverty, for example, as being a heritable trait, often. Not always. Again, there were some disputes about it. Um, and some people didn't think of it mattered whether it was genetically heritable or if it's just that you learn these things from your family, but we're going to sort of stamp that out. And I think people widely accept that sort of view. You know, the idea that, you know, um, disabilities would just be transmitted from generation to generation. There's certainly heritable forms of disability, but they are the minority of disabilities. And, and most children who are born with a disability don't have parents who have disabilities. Um, so take Down syndrome, for example, which became a, a you know one of the focal points for um, some of the sterilization programs that, that were there. Down syndrome, children who end up with Down syndrome are, are born to parents who don't have Down syndrome, partly because uh, males who have Down syndrome are sterile themselves. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 
so that it's not that it's not a real disease or condition or disorder or there are, we can't say there's no difference in, in quality of life in some of these sorts of cases. But I think the bigger package that these views are a part of really need to be examined more, more critically before we go down the path. And, and again, history is our guide here, not to say it couldn't be, you know, admit, yeah, there's this possibility, but now we need to think about, uh, we need that history to constrain and inform our current enthusiasm you know for some of these policies so you know child removal practices get away from the biological realm you might think you know uh let's have a think about child removal practices in australia and canada they were both taken to be the best sort of way forward for indigenous communities it's on the best interpretation you can give of things but it's clearly part of a colonial project and it's predicated on the idea that the value of lives of people in indigenous communities are just you know, their lives are worse and that and and we're in some sense saving the kids by pulling out so-called half-breed children and, and bringing them up in, in, in white families. Um, that was mainstream sort of view until very, very late as well. And you had residential schools in Canada and you had comparable kinds of programs of child removal here. In Canada, they've gone through a very extensive program of reconciliation and commemoration and recognition of, of how wrong that was. But they, the last residential school only closed in 1997. In Australia, I would say, I've only been back in Australia for four years now after you know, having been overseas for 30, uh, I would say we've got a bit further to go uh, on that front and that recognition. And um, the feeling of backlash against that as well is very strong in Australia. I have to say that people may not realise if they haven't lived somewhere else, but it's sometimes a bit frightening that, you know, the idea of, of, of that we need to do more in terms of recognising that past and adjusting for it and realising the ongoing intergenerational effects of it uh, on communities, you know, I, I often hear people sort of, I guess you can't hear people rolling their eyes, but the equivalent, if you don't want to mix metaphors too much, <laughs> but you know, they're, they're often impatient with the idea that we need to do more. Or we need to have deeper forms of recognition of the, the trauma of that past. But it's very, very real. Yeah. So, so when you were saying backlashes then, you meant in terms of uh, within the country, people having a backlash against it, or did you mean internationally looking at everyone here? Oh, no, sorry. I mean, people who sort of say, oh, yeah, here's another, you know, yeah. here's another Indigenous white source of issue. And that's, you know, this is all these problems we have now all to you know, be pinpointed back to this mm. history. I think it's just a failure to recognise how deeply disrupt, you know, to be wrenched out of your communities, to lose your language, to have, your, you know, if you're a parent, to have your children taken away, not be able to see them, Um you know, and then you see these intergenerational effects, multi-generational effects of this uh, many, many years later. I think it's if you haven't got close contact with that, which is I think it's part of a function of how segregated Australian society is around this in some ways in terms of where people live and, and who's really, apart from a bit of tourism, how many people have been in so-called remote communities and even the language of remote communities itself is a kind of, well, what's the centre and what's the periphery, uh, who's centre where, um, you might see the, that is introducing various kinds of biases. I think it's hard to really imaginatively project yourself into that sort of situation for, for the vast majority of people. And so I think part of the job here is this, it's this empathetic understanding of what that's really like. Mm. You know, so when people come up with ideas and quick fixes and, or are dismissive about how deeply traumatic some aspects of that past might be, you know, I, I, there's no substitute for immersing people in that uh, a little bit, I think, to, to sort of help shift them. Yeah. I mean, uh, a large chunk of this has to come like what you've learned yourself, and I feel this probably relates to almost everything, and it's uh, to do with this in a sense, to be ridiculously sweeping, but it's the idea of hubris seems to be a big feature of like almost, uh, as you said at the start, philosophy being, seemed to be about some of the time like, 
thinking a bit more and being like, hey, let's just calm down here. But that does seem to be a common thread a lot of the time, like how much it can be just overconfidence in what you think or not appreciating the complexity of systems and how groups act versus how individuals within that group might want to act uh, versus the world. And this like this is a great example with obviously the kids uh, issue, but then obviously the wider issue of people thinking they've got the science down to make decisions on who's good and who's bad. Um, is that kind of like a part of that? Would be an element of philosophy, just that whole idea of just being like, yeah, let's everyone just relax. Right? We're not we're not so smart, guys. It's more complicated than that. Well, it is for me, but I also think it needs to apply to philosophy itself. I'm often thinking that some of my colleagues are just. Um, in for the quick, sort of quick fix and sometimes the more spectacular kind of um, conclusion. There's a recent piece on the ABC website by a colleague of mine, uh, Nicholas Agar, called uh, Confessions of a Philosophical Shitstirrer. And he talks, he takes up this phrase from the OED. It's a real sort of word, you know, and we know informally what it means. It's somebody, somebody who's in there just to stir things up and they're not that interested in the truth or in convincing people. They just want to get people riled up. And... Um, you know, that's come into the philosophical sorts of space that I, I work in, uh, in the context of eugenics. So the idea of, like, defending eugenics now seems like a very bold sort of thing to do, right? But it turns out when you look at, you know, and this is part of what Agar himself is confessing to in this piece, is that he's in that space really just to, you know, rile people up and build a reputation and get quoted and things like that. It's a kind of <laughs> stunning kind of piece itself, which itself is a piece of, philosophical shit story yeah. if you like uh, confess yeah. to that like guy i'm doing it but it's still doing it as up yeah 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 and i think that that just um that could do with a little bit more hubris genuine i mean sorry it could do with a little less it's very hubristic and do you know with a little bit more humility is what mm-hmm. i mean to say you know um because i just don't think we need that in our in our public space and we don't need it you don't need to be now thinking should i really take this person seriously at all you know, in this, or are they just trying to get a rise out of me? It doesn't help in in trying to advance discussion and, you know, uh, engage with people generally who you might deeply disagree with. I think it's important that we take each other seriously as as thinkers and interlocutors and, and uh, treat each other respectfully. And so this kind of shit-stirring thing, I'm not sure that it's part of that, should be part of that package. But people could disagree with this. I had a discussion with colleagues the other day that it was actually not a bad thing at all. We sometimes need to get people riled up and worked up, and that might be our main motivation. Well, I guess, like, look, uh, everyone loves a good, a good bit of trolling. Of course, it's always hilarious. But um, I feel like it's value adding to the uh, to the discourse can sometimes be negative. But this this already falls into a much more complex. Funnily enough, I was just talking to a friend about this yesterday. He was talking about uh, he was more about writing and art. And uh, how apparently there was a fan fiction thing a few years ago and someone on that was kind of promoting the idea that actually we should start looking at conspiracy theories as a legitimate form of fan fiction that should be like looked at mm-hmm. and awarded. And I kind of pushed back against that because I was like, well, conspiracy theories actually, it's not about the artifice, it's about the power dynamics which then want to promote certain ideas. So everyone who sits here and thinks, oh, yeah the conspiracy theory of flat earth or let's say anti-vax is just happening. But it's like, no, no, certain groups feel like they can leverage this to get certain things so it's more complicated than just saying it's shit stirring or it's just made up and that's where i kind of yeah. feel like that idea of shit stirring is problematic in that sense because like yes i 100 percent agree with stirring shit and throwing shit and mixing it up but at the same time is that being leveraged by certain groups are certain people then taking advantage of that to promote their ideas or to yeah. muddy the waters intentionally to confuse things and that's where i feel like i would have an issue with it if you know what i mean 
Yeah, yeah. I think we've seen a lot of that in politics in the last while, and some people might think that's all that politics ever is. Um, and I think one of the nice things we have in Australia is a much uh, healthier, deeper level of scepticism about politics than you do in, in some other parts of the world. And, and that's, I've always been sort of proud of that as an Australian, that, you know, the politicians can be taken down a, a peg or two. Often they take themselves down uh, pretty uh, much of their own accord. Um, but it's good not to be, you know, beholden too much to those sorts of views. Now, you know, in the current environment where people are coming under criticism for unpopular lockdown policies and things like that, and more than criticisms and threats and stuff, you might wonder about whether you want to encourage that, those sorts of challenges. But I think it's got, it's got to be respectful and limited and um, it can't be anything goes here and people could clearly get carried away with this in, in you know, pretty horrific sorts of directions. So I don't mean to be fanning the flames of that either, but there, there are questions about um, individual autonomy and empowering people to live their lives as they see fit. I think we, we all value that. Um, in our, our society. Yeah, of course. I know another another book that I had mentioned that you said we yes. might touch on, I just wanted to throw in, was this great book. So it's not by a philosopher, <laughs> but it's one of my favorite books. It's, it's by a guy called, uh, he, he's trained as an art historian at the Art Institute of Chicago, a guy called James Elkins, and it's called The Domain of Images. And it was published about uh, 20 years ago or so, and I came upon it and I was just really struck by it and uh, end up teaching a, a, a big class on it, uh, at the university I was teaching at in Illinois at the time, he came down for a conference. So, you know, and I subsequently went and bought another dozen of his books or so because he's you know spitting out one yeah. a year, um, and they're all incredibly deep. And what this book is about, and why it caught me, you know, called the Domain of Images, is he just starts off saying, you know, basically most of the images that exist in the world are non-art images. There's all sorts of things that count as, count as images, and they're not. Art. And he doesn't just mean art in a narrow, construed way, but they're not artistic images by any stretch of the imagination. But most of the reflective writing about images, even with the expansion to think about things like visual culture or visual studies or whatever, um, are still on art images, right? So there's that kind of contrast, and he's trying to get us to think more creatively about these non-art sorts of images. So he'll look a lot at, like, scientific diagrams, and, and uh, he'll even look at pictographic um, languages and early writing systems and the la- you know boundary between writing systems and pictures and stuff like that. And he just wanders around in this sort of space to open it up. And I thought, you know, this is what I love. This is very philosophical, even though he's not a philosopher. He's seeing, he's noticing, he's observing something that seems incongruent or it doesn't quite fit. You know, why, if most of the images aren't art images, there's all the writing on it. But he's not probing just down that path. He's trying to actually say, well, let's kind of do a better job of thinking about these non-art images and let's try and get a bit of a, a catalogue and a set of tools for thinking about them in more systematic sorts of ways. And so it's challenging an accepted sort of view that's just out there in, in the field that we hadn't really noticed. And he's doing something constructive about changing that. And that's what I kind of think is maybe that's what's shared with Millikan's work in a very different area uh, as well. So, you know, um, I, I will never have, you know, the kind of depth and expertise that somebody like Elkins has with respect to the visual world. But the book made me think a lot. And we ended up t- I ended up teaching this class with people from maybe 12 different subject areas and disciplines from all over the university in it. And it was just rewarding to see what people pulled out of it and what they got. So that's that that kind of speaks to that other sort of maybe more integrative and moving around different areas interest that I have uh, as, as a philosopher. Um, and in some ways, one of the compliments I I enjoy, uh, not that I get lots of film, um, but sometimes it happens at conference where people say, you know, what are you trained in? Like I can't figure out because you, your talk's got a lot of 
psychology in it or it's got a lot of history in it or whatever. And they say, oh, I'm actually trained in philosophy and, and some people still look just as puzzled, but other people go, ah, oh, right. So that's how you're able to move around those different sorts of things. But that's a compliment because a philosopher should always know, you know, a decent amount about what they're philosophizing about in some other sort of area. Very true. Also, I love the word philosophizing. It doesn't get used enough, but uh, we should probably call it there. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been great to have you. Um, I guess I probably just didn't clarify this. Is there anything anyone should follow or look at that you would like to shout out to while I've got you here? I can also chuck it in the show notes. Yeah, what, what kind of thing are you thinking of? What's the, what are the possible answers? <laughs> I don't know, to be honest, because I, if I have a comedian on, they usually have an Instagram profile or something like that, or if someone's got a book out, they'll mention a book, but I guess we have anything. Oh, so, yeah, I, I think one thing that you know, people might want to take a look at is we've, uh, I've recently formed a not-for-profit organization called People, Philosophical Engagement in Public Life, P-E-I-P-L, and one of the main things we're doing is putting on some um, camps for kids, summer camps for kids, day camps. They come and they get immersed in activities on a particular kind of theme to improve their critical, collaborative and creative thinking. And uh, we've just got them at the UWA campus at University of Western Australia in Perth. Um, but there's a lot of interest in doing this more thoroughly. So alongside sports camps and other fun things like that, you have these fun philosophy camps. Um, and um, they're really starting to take off. So I'm super, super keen to see if that's got a bit more uptake from people who want to see it in their local. I, I love how uh, kind of geeky that sounds, <laughs> philosophical camp, but I 100% agree with the idea of teaching the tools which are just almost l- helping. Uh, the way I would look at it is almost working around, like you said, the biological flaws where our brain certain thinks in certain ways. It's like providing you the tools to work around that in a way or to see what they are. Yeah. So, yeah, I 100% support that. Yeah, so it's all activity-driven. It's just fun for the kids. So one we did was uh, on the theme of oceans, and we did it with the Oceans Institute at the university where they got to learn about corals and how intricate they were and wave patterns and how they get formed. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, and they, they're making lots of stuff. You know, we have one on games, like what's the nature of games? It's called Game On, you know, where the kids will actually learn about, you know, yeah, you give them a game where the person who's winning all of a sudden, there's a rule in the game that says now you lose everything you've acquired in this. They go, hey, that's not fair. You say, well, why is that not fair? Why, why, you know, if that's the rule of the game, why couldn't that? You know, and then they, it makes them think about what makes something fair. You know, what about games where nobody can win? Is, are they good games or not? Like, or are they just? And then, and the whole idea is to get them to create a game collaboratively by the end of the week. So you got them for 40, 35, 40 hours for the week. And you really see these transformations and how they think in these concrete ways. That's about actually making something. It might be a play. It might be a game. Uh, we've got one called Rock On that we're going to start on. What's going to all be about music. They'll create a piece of music, maybe an instrument, something like that. Um, and so, you know, they find it lots of fun and the philosophy kind of gets snuck in there. So although it's geeky, it's not as geeky as you might <laughs> <Yeah>. think. <laughs> uh, it sounds great. All right. Uh, well, thanks very much for being on the show, Rob. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, great talking to you, George. Thanks for your interest and um, I look forward to listening to more of your stuff. Awesome. All right, cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.